any type of crisis has an element of assaulting us and we have to sort of take a breath and pause and then gather the facts before us. You have to allow enough time for some of the shock to wear off and also to create some room for you to slowly face facts and absorb what actually has happened to you. Coming up, Ariane talks with Nobel Peace Prize recipient and Survivor Corps co-founder Jerry White. Next on Change Nation from the first 30 days. What an honor to have a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize on the show today. In 1997, the international campaign to ban landmines was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and one of its recognized leaders, Jerry White, is with us today. Jerry lost a leg to a landmine blast in Jerusalem nearly 25 years ago. Today, he is the leader of the international campaign to ban landmines and the founder of Survivor Corps. His new book, I Will Not Be Broken, focuses on helping anyone get through a life crisis. He's here with us today to share his insights as to what might help and truly make a difference to any of us facing something tough. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Jerry, when people are right at the start of confronting a change, whether it be losing a loved one, an accident, a disturbing health diagnosis, we're often overcome with an inability just to move or start thinking and and get going again. What would you suggest right at the start of the first 30 days to someone who's facing such a challenge? I think hold steady would be my advice. Um, You have to allow enough time for some of the shock, um, if it's been sudden or traumatic, to wear off and also to create some room for you to slowly face facts and absorb what actually has happened to you. So any type of crisis, of course, um, has an element of assaulting us, and we have to sort of take a breath and pause and then gather the facts before us. What's the hardest part that you find in people who are going through these types of crises? What typically shows up? Well, I think in the, in the course of um, a trauma or something that feels like an attack on the world as we once knew it, um, our natural instinct, you know, is sort of that adrenaline fight or flight, you know, either sort of we're afraid of it, and so you want to run, or you want to suppress it, or you want to deny it, or you want to fight against it. So um, that is very natural and happens in the beginning. And again, you want to sort of not do so much damage and buy some breathing space so that you can sort through the thoughts and actually resist long-term that sort of temptation, I would say, to sort of deny what's actually happening and what are the facts, um, or to flee them or suppress them. Jerry, I want to jump right into your beautiful book, I Will Not Be Broken. I know that you outline five steps for moving through any type of tragedy. I'd love it if you could just share what those are. Sure. Um, so this is derived not only from my own life experiences, but also from interviewing and working with thousands of survivors of all sorts of man-made violence and atrocity around the world. But the five steps to positive survivorship are as follows. One, as I mentioned, is facing facts. You've got to realize what's happened to you. And in my case, I lost a leg, and I had to face that fact rather quickly. Um, the second is choose life, not death. It's as old as Deuteronomy, hoping for a future and um, staying alive and in the game. The third is reach out, that no one survives alone. Isolation will, in fact, kill us. Um, the fourth step is get moving. In other words, you have to do it. You have to get up and out of the house and rehab thyself 
as it were, do your survivor sit-ups. And number five is give back. This is actually the, probably the most telling in terms of people who not only survive, but ultimately grow stronger and thrive after trauma or crisis, that they find a way to find meaning in their experience and give back to others in need and contribute to their communities. So I'd love it if you could. If, could you share with us your story as to losing a leg and, and taking your own self through these five steps? Sure. Um, I was 20 years old, and I had taken my junior year abroad from university to study in the Middle East, in fact, in Jerusalem. And I adored the Middle East and fell in love with the quote-unquote Holy Land and ended up sort of wanting to get to know every nook and cranny and archaeological dig there. And on a sunny, beautiful day in April 1984, I was camping with two of my best friends and roommates at the time, and we wandered into an unmarked minefield um, north of the Galilee, sort of on the edge of the Golan Heights. And after camping and sort of packing up and heading down a hillside on one beautiful day, suddenly there was a boom, you know, a loud sort of deafening thud, and I had no idea what had happened. I had no idea what a landmine was. I couldn't imagine that I was in a minefield or why would there be one here. Um, but it turns out when my two friends rolled me over, um, we saw what had happened. And in fact, I had lost my lower right leg to blown off because of a landmine explosion. And my right leg was blown open and raw. And here we were, you know, very unexpectedly smack in the middle of a minefield where we couldn't tell where it began or ended. And how the heck were we going to get out alive? And so you, how did you face that fact? How did you not go into blame, which is probably what I think a lot of us would have done? Well, I think there are two pieces of that recovery. One is the, the urgent emergency. Um, looking down, I really started to chant trying to make a fact out of something that seemed incomprehensible to me. I have no foot. I have no foot. Where's my foot? I have no foot. I was chanting like as if trying to get my mind around this. Um, and then the fact that I was watching myself bleed to death and that if we didn't get out, I would die. It was in that moment, too, though, I think there's something that kicks in in the survivor spirit that is, uh, you know, some definitions of a survivor say that it's someone who refuses to accept defeat. Like, I'm not going down this way. Like, you don't want to be taken out. So that adrenaline rush is a little bit of a competitive spirit. And in that minefield on that day, April 12, 1984, I felt that surge that said, oh, no, this is not how I die. Even though, by all accounts, like getting out, you know, I, if you'd look back, you'd say, no, you're likely to die this way. Um, and so whether it was a miracle or the tenacity of survivors climbing out, um, it's hard to say. So in the early stage, you're trying to face facts and choose life, the second step. And I wanted to live desperately. Um, and so the hour, the next hour of just struggling out of that minefield was with, um, you know, prayers on our lips and um, every amount of energy and blood, sweat and tears we could muster to get out. Later on in dealing with recovery, I think that there's another way that you start to face facts of learning to that your leg isn't growing back, I'm not a starfish, for example, and that I have to befriend and learn to walk again with an artificial limb, that was another sort of fact to wrestle with. So these things aren't always, they're sequential in a sense, but they also are cyclical. You know, you're, there are many new facts that come up over time that you have to face, and there are many choices to 
make along the way of what do I want to do with this? Do I want to have that skin graft? Do I want to go home now out of Israel and flee to back to the States? Um, you're making a lot of choices, not just for life, but to imagine a better future and, um, and to try to pull yourself out of either self-pity or depression and the darkness that comes after something so traumatic. Jerry, I acknowledge your, your grace and poise and, and calmness. For many, I think they would go into anger and extraordinary blame and, and upset. How do we get out of those kind of emotions that tend to just trap us? I think if you, I mean, on one hand, it was instinctive for me, but it, it's also, you know, says something that perhaps I was more afraid than others about the danger of self-pity, depression, and the abyss of loss. So, you know, I liken it to, you know, I have four children, so I've watched them, you know, when they're crawling all around and they're going to go, like, eat off the floor in sort of electrical outlets. And when, somebody, when you're one of your children is going to put themselves in danger with a knife or electricity, you yell, like, stop, you know, no. Like, it's an emergency moment that you're trying to sort of teach them not to and then distract them with other things that would be more life-giving than an electrical outlet. I would liken that to when I see people, and myself included, on the edge of that abyss of danger, of darkness, self-pity, depression, and self-destruction, I yelled at myself for my own health rather selfishly, don't go there. It will kill you. Um, with that same level of urgency that I would do to my you know, two-year-old or one-year-old child heading for danger. So I don't know why I knew that. I think if more people knew how dangerous victimhood, a victim mentality, self-pity and despair can be, they would... Um, coach themselves rather urgently away from that cliff because their health depends on it. So wallowing in any of it is actually very self-destructive and is not the way through trauma, in my opinion, and experience. So Jerry, first one is face facts. Second one is choose life. How did you choose life? Was it family that made you do it? You just knew that this was a must for you? I guess it helps. Um, this is a more spiritual element, but it helps when you as I realize that you're, you realize you're more than your body, let's say, that there, even if you're an atheist or whether you're a you know, Buddhist or Christian or Jewish faith, it doesn't matter to me. This choose life element is wanting to breathe, wanting to have breath, to have life. And in that, for me, it was the faith of knowing and understanding that I was more than my body, that you could chop off my second leg, my arms, but you can't kill me unless I give you permission. You can't take away the fact that I'm a whole person, no matter how many limbs I've lost. So choosing life for me is both, you know, a willpower question, a real choice and a series of choices. But also in my case, I think I had a reservoir of spiritual faith that um, had me understand that. And when I interview survivors of all faiths around the world, many who become super survivors are those who have been able to have a spirituality that underpins their recovery. And they are, again, choosing life, not death, because there's already meaning and sort of a spiritual aspect to their recovery. Third one you said is reach out. Did you instinctively want to bring friends and family into it? Did you ever want to just go hide? 
Yeah, I would say it's like a snail. You sort of ping the, the shell and you withdraw. So the, interestingly, many of our natural and first inclinations to withdraw and go through something alone are the wrong impulses. They're, they are reactive, but we have to learn to respond differently and get ourselves out of the shell and moving again. So in my case, I guess I was fortunate, uh, having been in Israel for a while and made a number of friends, um, and coming from a large Irish Catholic family outside Boston, I had built in an army of social support. And social support is essential in recovery. So even if I was withdrawing, there was no stopping my mother, my father, my five brothers and sisters from taking a plane or getting over to see me, as well as friends, roommates, and others I'd met during my time in Israel. So... I believe that that social support, much of it is visible, much invisible. Many people are praying for you all around the world. Um, all those things are benefit, and they accrue to your recovery. So although I had many times where I would like want to withdraw, want people to go away, I guess if you're in an Israeli hospital room with four other guys who are already blown up and burned and sort of disabled because of war, in, the, in this case in the mid-'80s it was in Lebanon, that there was no escaping and there was no withdrawing. Um, it was a very public and social experience to go through. And therein, I think, was a benefit and advantage, actually. Incredible. I'm getting emotional just listening to this. So the next one was Get Moving, which I guess is ironical when I, a part of you probably feels, well, that's really what's been taken away from me. Right. My personal mobility was surely challenged when you look down and I spent about six months sort of in and out of a wheelchair um, and a hospital bed. So learning about that, I think the funny point was, um, you know, when I'm in an Israeli hospital and they sort of transfer me from the bed to a wheelchair, and I had never been in a wheelchair, didn't know how to use it, but it's really not very mysterious. And the, they had a sort of tough love approach in Israel, and the nurse said, push and get yourself down to the feeding hall or the cafeteria, and that's where you'll have lunch. And I realized there was no more breakfast in bed in the hospital and that no one was going to do it for me. I actually had to start rolling forward and also had to start my own physical therapy. They would be at 6.30 every morning and meet your appointments and learn how to get your strength back after losing so much blood, so much weight, and so much strength over the course of weeks and months. So moving is very physical also emotional and spiritual, like getting yourself unstuck from living in the past. I think there's a number of ways you can interpret this idea of moving forward. And uh, for each of us, it's a little bit different, but you got to get back into some level of emotional as well as physical shape to face the world again. And then the final you mentioned is give back. And that's where um, I think I was raised to understand that to whom much is given, much is required, that there's sort of in our blessings, we should be sharing, and that that's sort of an obligation. So on one hand, I had the advantage of an upbringing that made very clear that no matter you know what advantages we had, you were always to pay attention to those not above you on some type of social ladder, but below or next to you and be helping out. So there was um, that ethic, shall we say, both in my religious as well as social upbringing. However, in this case, giving back um, became very personal to me that when I was looking at ways that I could help other war victims, it was in going to Cambodia and meeting or actually seeing mine victims and amputees on nearly every street corner. And a young girl hobbled up you know, on one crutch over to me when I was changing my fake leg and my sock on the side of the street. And in Khmer, she said, you are one of us. And at first it sort of struck me like, no, I'm not. You know, I'm a 
privileged, sort of a white, big American guy, and I'm over here checking things out in Phnom Penh. And then suddenly I had this intense shame for having even thought that distancing thought, and here was a girl inviting me to see myself as connected to Southeast Asia and the wars there, and just identify as another person with limb loss, not as a girl or as a beggar on the streets of Phnom Penh. And that was a real moment for me that I joke, you know, that my, my Grinch's heart might have grown a couple sizes that day. And I thought, how could I, she's right, how, how could I help? How can I give and connect to others in pain and in need? And that actually led to the formation of what was to be called Landmine Survivors Network and subsequently now Survivor Corps, where we help victims of war and violence all around the world you know, rebuild their lives and their communities and find the tools to do so. So my giving back at sort of a professional level, but also a very personal level, was to find ways that, you know, the things that I had learned in recovery, I could now share um, with strength to others mm-hmm. and sort of proliferate that around the world as opposed to mass destruction proliferation. We try to proliferate and share mass empowerment with other people who are bleeding and hurting all over the earth. Jerry, one of the things that we believe uh, here at the first three days is to really go looking for the positive in any change in any crisis and you've certainly created a lot of good around you from this crisis do you believe that something always good comes from a crisis there's always a possibility to create an empowering meaning from it I think there's, um, those are two questions one is does something always good come from a crisis and my answer would be no um, unless you choose for something good. The second part of your question, that you can is it possible to find meaning and make good, i.e. lemonade out of lemons? Yes, of course, that's the secret. So we go back to our choices that we make. Um, I believe that there's an inner survivor in all of us, and there's a natural resilience and desire to survive. And I think that's what we're talking about here, is inviting people to look at their circumstances differently and to choose a future and a hope. And so it's as old as, you know, the Bible. It's also whether, you know, if you read Viktor Frankl and talk about man's search for meaning, there are many sources which you start to see the power of the human spirit and will to, in fact, make meaning, find hope, and increase in strength and resilience because of our chosen response to crisis and trauma. It's nothing magic. It is not easy to do, but in fact, it is within our capacity as human beings, I believe. The way you put it in your book, actually, I have a note here to myself that I like. You say that happy endings can never be taken for granted. They must be chosen. I I definitely agree. And even so, a happy ending may not be how you thought it would turn out. It's actually not all romantic. Um, But there's something strange and beautiful and profound and inspiring when we start to realize that the secrets of life perhaps is in overcoming. And in, you know, for me, I think about finding myself and meaning in my missing piece, in my scars. And I think increasingly perfection and where so often we are all trying to move is a real distraction from this very gritty and textured life filled with lots of pain and surprises, but therein is this cycle of something that I think is profound and beautiful. And and you find this happy ending uh, quite differently and in different places than you ever imagined. You also refer to something that I I loved called the emotional muscle. 
and mm. that we have one and it's really our, our duty to develop that. How does someone find it, activate it, strengthen it, either who has gone through a life crisis or even just someone listening who would like to find that within themselves? I think it's sort of, it's hard to dissect as while we're still alive, the connection between the mind and the soul and the spirit and the body. And I, I would say, you know, on one hand, if you don't feel it, um, again, get moving. The physicality of living and being in shape or minding our health is um, not disconnected from this idea of emotional muscle as well. But on the emotional front and on the spiritual front, I do think you go back to your choices. Do you want to grow stronger? Are you ready just like you would be ready to feel the pains in your muscles after like too many sit-ups or trying to, you know, get jogging or prepare for a marathon again. Emotionally, there has to be something. Are you willing to sit with real terrorizing and terrifying feelings of anger, disappointment, loss, resentment? None of these things are fun feelings, but you have to get through them and sort of hold on to them and let them work something in you to get more in emotional shape so that you can build your resilience. So part of it goes back to the earlier conversation of holding steady and breathing and taking a look at when these feelings surface that are totally natural and are supposed to be the symptoms of something that's gone wrong or a tear in your muscle. It could be a tear in your emotional muscle and you're feeling it. Um, and it takes some time for that to remend or grow stronger. So you are not to be afraid of this challenge you're supposed to go through it, not around it. So all those sort of sports metaphors of like sort of sucking it up and, you know, get tough and going, you know, I don't want to sound glib because when it's an emotional suffering, I think it is five million times harder than the physical. I mean, these are Marines and others who are coming back and I'm speaking to at Walter Reed Hospital who come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And as I found at age 20 as a young man, the physical part was the easy part the living through the feelings and the betrayal associated with those feelings of loss and surprise and crisis and trauma, that is the toughest thing to get your mind around, and you have to decide you're going to apply yourself to do so. There's a parallel universe here in terms of spiritual life and emotional life that has to be looked at that mimics and is not dissimilar to our physical life, but very often we haven't practiced how to get in shape. And, and I think that I genuinely feel, not just because you know, I wrote them in the book, that these five steps are very clear roadmaps for helping us to be in emotional, spiritual, and physical shape for the troubles that come our way. I'm curious why some people become more closed, more depressed, and, and others sort of start living more and thriving more. Does, does this have something to do with how they were before, what they made life mean before? I think you can train people in resilience, and some people are more prepared than others, and some people's upbringings may make them more vulnerable than others, and then some people's DNA and physical structure can make them less resilient, shall we say, than others. That said, I still believe that at least a third of it, and maybe more than half, has to do with the choices we make surrounding what we've been given. So we've been given a certain physicality and you know, proclivity to resilience, or we've been given a certain upbringing and sort of training in sort of strength. But ultimately, that personal responsibility for your own life, your own future, and what you do with that is a very powerful third leg to that tripod and uh, must never be discounted. In fact, it can override and maybe more powerful than the other two pieces, but they're constantly interacting. So 
I do find it interesting working around the world why that's the big question. Why do some people, after a crisis or trauma, devolve and spiral downwards? And why do others not only overcome, but sort of spiral forward, onwards, and upwards? And I think that as we started to look at that, it was not only the process of what they were doing, these sort of five steps, but also you know, some of the contextual analysis it might be a little bit harder if you're sort of impoverished in northern Mozambique and you are spit upon because you have a disability and you can't find a job. I mean, it's not very easy to be resilient within the enormity of the obstacles that so many people face. But then lastly, I think i just comment on what I thought was interesting when I looked at people and what was it when you interviewed survivors but people who weren't doing so well, or you hear it in you know, the victim mentality, what were these hallmarks of victimhood that I think trap us and therefore we are unable to go onward and upward and they have to be watched out for and they include, one, living in the past. Are you stuck by something that happened to you in the past? And I would say even um, good or bad. It might be that you were beaten as a child. It might be that someone did you wrong in other ways. Or it might be that you were like, you know, a good-looking homecoming king and uh, you peaked or you perceive you, you, you're nostalgic about when you were younger, you were better. So something that is backward-focused and living in the past turns out, in fact, to be one of the hallmarks of a victim mentality that keep people from thriving. Second, we also learned, you know, in, in other, you know, hallmarks would be, you know, self-pity. Are you sort of whining and complaining a lot? Third, blaming. Are you also pointing at others and not taking responsibility yourself for your role in all of this? Fourth, resenting. Do you find it hard, for example, to celebrate other people's good news and success? Like, take a look at that. And lastly, um, what are the things that you're doing that are looking whether you're a taker or a giver, that taking more than you give, in other words, not giving back or contributing to the community, I call it sort of netting positive, that those five pieces are hallmarks and symptoms that you have to look at. Yeah, one question I've been wanting to ask is how do you, what is the best way for someone to help a friend or a family member, or a loved one or a colleague who is going through a, a difficult crisis? Listen up. And be present. I mean, I think that's probably the simplest piece, and it sounds much easier than it is to do. I mean, I was I was privileged to work with the Princess of Wales um, and brought Diana on her last humanitarian visit to Bosnia in 1997 in August, and I was so struck by this woman's true gift of compassion, but also her willingness to go straight to the heart of the pain of people, you know, into their living rooms and to sit. She didn't chat or try to talk about being a princess. She listened to people pour out their gut-wrenching tales of survival, and she touched, and she was empathetic and listened and didn't sort of try to make anything better. But by that very sort of sacrificial act of caring enough to show up, and then being present and listening in the face of people's enormous pain after the war. Therein was one of the best things that she could have done. I, I, in the book, I call it empathy, empathetic etiquette. You know, how do you go and do that? It is very hard and in many cases a lost art. But you don't have to be gifted with compassion the way Diana was. It's also something we all can learn.
And this leads me beautifully into one of my last questions, which is your wonderful company that you started, now called Survivor Corps, I'm sure is a an example of empathetic etiquette and helping people go through this. What would you like us to know about the organization? And I certainly would love people to, to check it out. That website is survivorcorps.org. Right. The... Um it's very exciting that after 10 years of working with amputees all around the world, we just realized that we couldn't limit our sort of our work and our approach to just like one category of um, war victim, for example. So Survivor Corps is really a global network of people helping each other overcome the effects of war and violence. And our aim is to provide the tools and support that all survivors need to rise above their injuries and give back to their communities. So that's the tagline of what we're doing. It really captures the essence. Rise above, give back. Um, and that applies in all sorts of ways. But once we start to realize how very often privileged and advantaged we are in you know, whatever country we're in, that we might find the space or encouragement to overcome our own injuries and as a way to help the world be less violent, help others in their struggle, um, all around the world. And that's, that's our intention, is working with and among survivors, those most affected by what's wrong with the world and scarred by what's wrong with the world, to help make things right with the world by their example and by choosing another way besides retribution, more violence, etc. So um, it's, a, it's very serious work. But um, the irony here, it is very inspiring and fun work, and getting people involved to join what I would call the survivor movement is really helping to build a new peace movement globally all around the world. So by all means, learn more, join Survivor Corps, and uh, work on yourself locally with those five steps, and then think about giving back globally. Jerry, the way we end off all our interviews here at the show is to ask every expert, every change agent, change optimist, this exact same three signature questions. And there are more questions about change and transition, which you certainly have that, uh, that background. So the first one is this. What is the belief that you personally go to during times of change in your life? The change is good and to be befriended physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Second question, probably a bit similar given the answer you just gave me. The best thing about change is? That it changes us for the better if we allow it. And the last one is, what is the best change that you have ever made? That's a great one. I guess what comes first to mind, so I say it is, I don't want it to sound all schlocky on you, but choosing my life partner and marrying Kelly Gammon White. That's probably brought out the best in me and been and choosing to sort of share life deeply and intimately with a equal partner must be the best change and choice I've ever made. Beautiful. And she's a, she's a very lucky woman. Jerry, what an incredible journey you've had. And I'm very grateful for you taking the time to share it with all of us here today. Well, I'm so grateful for your work in spreading the word on the blessings of change and your positivity. So by all means, uh, it takes this village of like-minded people and building a movement to transform things. So very grateful for your work and the opportunity to share some of my stories. Thank you, Jerry. For more information about Jerry and his work, please visit survivorcorpse.org. Please be sure to pick up a copy of his wonderful book, I Will Not Be Broken. And you can also find out more at that website, iwillnotbebroken.com. 
And please come and visit us at first30days.com for more interviews, more experts and more inspiration through times of change. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Change Nation from the first 30 days. Please visit us on iTunes in the Society and Culture podcast section under Philosophy. Remember to take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of the First 30 Days Incorporated. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved.